everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 76, Generic Inside. Recorded December 2nd, 2012, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. <coughs> OP.com. This week we're going to talk about a fairly interesting article uh, from one, one writer who explains why he only likes generic computers and open source software. Seemed right up, right up the alley for this audience, so we're going to go there, and hence, Generic Inside. And of course, my name is Mark, and here with me to discover all things Linuxy goodness are my good friends, Mr. Chris Neves, the command line godfather. Hiya, Chris. Hey, 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 what's new today? And the, and the ever-present, the gooey one, Seth Gooey Kid Anderson. Hiya, Seth. Hey, Mark. Welcome, EDL faithful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good to have, uh, good to be back. And I just, I got to go ahead and get this uh, out in the open. Um, we're all going to die. Uh, global warming is going to kill us all uh, within the next 45 minutes or so. Um, Sweet. Yeah. I just, you I know. Go out, have all my fun now then. Right. Yeah. But before the end of the show, we will all burn to cinders. So uh, this, yeah. this is going to be the last act of dying men. I believe you because, uh, like, I was uh, splitting wood yesterday, and I, like, had to stop and go sit in the shade because it was sweating, and the sun was beating down on me, and I was hot. Yeah. Uh, and it was over 80 degrees here at my house today. Yeah, we had a Freaking warm day December. in December in the south. Therefore, we are going to die. That's that's <laughs> what the Facebook posts have been saying. This global warming, it was 78 degrees. You know, here in, in Georgia, where I live, Seth said it was 80 there in Texas. It was about 77 here. Oh, my gosh, we're all going to die. Yes, yeah, so let's take this one data point, a hot day in December, not even hot, a warm day in December, and let's translate that to the fact that the whole world is going to burn. Uh, it's, pr- it's getting worse. The Mayans were right. No hostess, um, and uh, <laughs> it's getting warmer. So uh, what about uh, you, Chris? Is, is global warming affecting you? Is it up to the upper teens this week? Oh, no. Actually, we were fairly warm today. Uh, current temperature right now in lower Canada is 43. But it feels like 30 because of the wind. So We had a warm front come through. It was, it was Saturday. I got up Saturday morning and turned to f- put a fire in the fireplace because it was chilly. By noon, I had turned the air conditioner on and put the fire out. So, you know, clearly that one data point proves global warming. Must be. It's got to be. Yes. We're all going to burn. And, I, you know, I just, I got to poke fun at that because the next time we have a cold day, right, even even though it's winter, it'll be December 21st, the actual first day of winter, it'll be cold, and there'll be Facebook posts saying, well, so much for global warming. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Knock it off, people. So it has been unseasonably warm up in my neck of the wood. So I'm I've only had to break out the heavy jacket once. So yeah. And uh, being a southern boy, I don't even own a heavy jacket. I have a leather uh, car coat, but it doesn't have a lining. And I've, I have a hoodie, and that is I I tell everyone this is my heavy winter jacket. Yeah. It's a sweatshirt hoodie I bought like five years ago. Yeah, so, I, uh, my it's wife. Really cold. Before she was my wife, when she was my fiance, I didn't have a coat at all. Um, it's just, and we've had this argument a thousand times, particularly about the kids. So, okay. We walk from our house, which has a heater in it, 
out to the car, which has a heater in it. And then we walk from the car, which, by the way, has a heater in it, into the office, the mall, the church, wherever we're going, which also has a heater in it. So your combined time in an average day out in the elements is like a minute and a half. So let's bundle the kids up in seven layers of down and hoods and scarves for that. No. The the three times of the year you have to do it. It's not even like it's a regular basis, you know. It averages out to be like what, fifty or sixty dollars an hour. <laughs> you can rent you can rent winter wear cheaper than that. You know, and, uh, so bring that mentality yes, up no here, sense. guys. Well, you bring know that mentality up here. So anyway, as I was saying, I didn't even I didn't own a coat. I didn't see the need for one. Um and so she, loving me very deeply, bought me a winter coat. And this was like a north face, you know, six inches of goose down coat. I put that thing on for one day for about 10 minutes and was sweating. I was like, oh my gosh, she's trying to kill me with this thing. (laughs) Because like the lowest temperature all that year in Texas was 40. (laughs) And she bought me this coat. No, 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 thank you. I think I literally wore it once and then gave it to the Goodwill or something. See, I think it's funny. We were down in Phoenix with my in-laws, and we went to the Phoenix Zoo, and it was like maybe 40 degrees outside, and then you know it was nighttime, Christmas Eve time. So they had to walk through the the zoo, and it all lit up and everything. And they had a, a petting area for manta rays and, and the little fish that swim alongside them. Uh-huh. So here, me and my son are in shorts and t-shirts, playing in the water. And all these other people are in the heavy down monster hats, walking around like they're freezing to death. And here, me and my son are just having a good old time in the water and not even caring. And the looks we got, oh man, if looks would kill, we would have been dead on the spot. You ain't from around here, are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I we heard that all the way through the zoo. Yeah. So, uh... Anyway, that's my my weekly rant on not on global warming, but on people be, be, being stupid about global warming. Warming. I'm not even gonna hit the is there such a thing or is it man made. Just stop being stupid. Uh, it, it bugs me when people take extremely large data sets like the average temperature of a planet over the last century, and and take one day and one region's temperature and try to correlate the two. No, no, you're just being dumb people. Well, or, hey, look, we've had a thermometer in the same spot for 25 years. Of course, the last five years, we've poured concrete underneath it and built buildings around it. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why it's warmer there now. Uh, sorry. Okay. My bad. I'm done. <laughs> so something a little more techie. Who wants to go to Mars? Sure. I'll go. <laughs> I would love to go. Um and I all you need, the physical. Yeah, all you need is about five hundred thousand dollars to make the trip. <sighs> um, it's the guy who's uh, the private space flight company SpaceX. He's his goal is to like build a community in Mars, and uh, you know, so like you know, back in the days when like other countries colonized America, you know, that that's his goal is to like start a colony in Mars. So, uh, well, if you do uh, it the way NASA does it in, in the doing it the most efficient way possible, waiting till the two orbits are as close as they get to one another, you get that window every 21 months. So you're talking about a, a minimum of a four year round trip 
but he's not even talking about a round trip. He's talking about going there to stay. Yeah. Um, that's that's some serious pioneer right there. I mean, you're not you're not worried about Indians at that point. You're worried about oxygen. Food. Yeah. <laughs> oxygen. <laughs> yeah, and if stuff goes wrong, you know, it's it's not like, you know, if you go to another continent, somebody there's always a ship around, but you know, if you go to another planet, there's limited means to rescue you. So yeah, and uh, everything you everything you need you have to take with you. Uh, one of one of my favorite podcasts is called uh, Star Talk Radio. It's Neil deGrasse Tyson of the uh, Hayden Planetarium. Uh, mm-hmm. Everybody knows Neil. He's a, a physicist rock star these days. Uh, and they were talking about going to Mars. And one of the things they were talking about was, you know, like if we wanted to raise cattle on Mars, assuming we had built some sort of biosphere, um, it would be too inefficient to actually carry the cattle because then you've got like. You know, not only do you have to feed them, but there's the whole dung issue you got to deal with, and they're using up your right. oxygen. So you would, wait. You could use the dung to make methane to refuel your ship. Right. Yeah, Sorry. actually, they talk, and they they said you could actually use it as good heat shields, that right. uh, organic heat shields. But anyway, um, the solution: uh, take some frozen eggs and some frozen sperm with you, and then make your own cattle once you get there. So you could carry ten thousand head in a test tube, and you're good to go. Yeah. yeah. There are people seriously thinking about this. I, you know, I ask who wants to go to Ma- uh, to Mars. Some of you raised your hand. I would not. I would say no thanks. For first off, I'm claustrophobic, and squishing me inside a capsule, unless it's you know the size of the QE2, I'm not interested. Um, secondly, I like pizza delivery and broadband. Right. <laughs> I'm not a pioneer. I am, you know, uh, playing the Oregon Oregon Trail. You know, I'm always the guy who dies of dysentery. It just, it's not for me. I, I am glad that there are people, you know, I literally wouldn't be here if there weren't for pioneering spirits in the world. I just didn't inherit that gene. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I, I think it would be cool if I had the opportunity to go, I, you know, like if, if it were scientifically feasible and... I think it might be plausible today, but not really feasible. I think if it were scientifically feasible and they're like, we're leaving at the beginning of 2015, I would say, I want to go mark me down. So now once I we get that kind of cool faster than light travel thing worked out um, and we can <laughs> be to Mars and, you know, the, the average commute, you know, two hours on a, on a, on a plane, you know, a jet plane, uh, a, a rocket ship, whatever. Um, then yeah, I could certainly visit Mars. Maybe even stay there. Maybe holiday. Book book a a club med there for a week. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, I mean, if I want to go to Mars, I could just move out into the Serengeti Desert. It's essentially the same environment. Um, That's where all the movies are done too, and it costs a lot less money. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think I just uh, I came across the story. I read it. I think it was interesting. I would. Like I say, of course, I don't have the money it would take to go, but I think it would be kind of cool. I would like to go if, like I say, if it were feasible um, to go start a colony, realizing you know you probably wouldn't be coming back. I could do that. <laughs> I was about to make a crass joke about you having to go to Mars to find a woman, but I chose not to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I might have a better chance there. Uh, <laughs> I am literally the last man on this planet. Come on. <laughs> um, and then another interesting bit of 
it's not really space, but tech stuff. Uh, this whole 3D printing thing that has been a big deal um, in in recent years has been put to use for, for more than just novelties. A custom 3D printed beam um, could be 10,000 times stronger than steel. For those of you who don't know, 3D printing is is basically um, you take a vat of plastic, pl- uh, liquid plastic, that cures under, say, ultraviolet light. I'm oversimplifying this in a big way. You raise a platform up out of the goop, and you, sli- uh, you draw a pattern on it with a beam of ultraviolet light. That makes uh, like a trace on it. Then you dip it back down to get more goop on it, and you do it again, and you dip it down and get more goop on it. And eventually, you can create a 3D printed object uh, of, of any size and shape. These are used uh, now um, in uh, engineering and in like, like GM and, and you know car manufacturers. They will draw something on the computer and then have it 3D printed and then figure out how to make it. So it's a real thing. Uh, but some people here have figured out how to make, make them useful in uh, building materials. Yeah, they um it's kind of cool. They take and they make a beam and they kind of they analyze it, you know, and subject it to a stress test and then they map out all of the weak points and reinforce those. And right now, like the technology only exists to do it like to the third generation before the details get too fine for the printing capabilities, but it shows it according to the tests and stuff they've ran, it could be 10,000 times stronger than steel, which is pretty strong and pretty cheap. Of course, you know, right now with the 3D printers, you're not talking about a 50-foot thing made of uh, made of this, but, you know, a short section for right now. But anyway, it was just another cool story. Let me uh, stick the link in the chat room for everybody who is listening live and would like to check it out. Yeah, this is taking place at the University of Nottingham in the UK. Uh, and uh, some some doctoral students there, presumably. Um, have started out with, uh, you know, messing with stuff, making them out of plastic and see what happens. And, um, and it's, it's, it's not so much a general purpose, like making an I beam that you use in a building, but you tailor make the beam to exactly what you need it to do. So if you take the, the exact specifications of what you need and then make it to that, you can make it extremely strong. And, uh, you know, the idea there is that, you know, in a perfect world, um, you would have these 3D printers on site and be able to build whatever you need to make specifically for the environment in which you're making it. Be really useful on Mars, I bet. So. <laughs> yes, it might. <laughs> there uh, you go. I think it's kind of cool. Um, the the tests were really specific, though, so it's not like it would be, you know, like you're saying, Mark, you know, this would replace an I-beam, but it's kind of a cool tech to see that we can do something like this with just a lot of engineering tricks because the picture that they show while it's only four millimeters long um is really intricate i mean i'm just kind of looking over the the picture and wow that is some lattice work and you know things that are impractical now become commonplace in a generation so mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you, can... you know take yeah taking a computer around with you everywhere you go 24 7 and never leave your side was impractical five years ago you know you had these big clunky laptops but now you know you have a little tablet or a smartphone you talk about something that was impractical when i was in high school right um and now it's throwaway technology oh this smartphone it'll only last 10 hours 
Oh, it only has a dual core processor. Oh, who, who needs this garbage? You know, and throw it away. So, yeah, what's in what's impractical today is tomorrow's Tinker Toy. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. I'm sure that somebody is going to see this and just jump all over it and throw a bunch of money at it because, you know, how many times have you heard of buildings collapsing because of structure fa- structure failure? Right. So. Not very often, actually. I mean, yeah, well, it it's usually happen. structure failure because of some other something else happened, but it was a structure. the 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 backbone of the building collapsed. So, if you could replace the backbone of the building with something like this, or maybe uh, interweave this type of technology with standard I beams, so then you have both strength of of the tech or of the the lattice working and the durability of the steel, then you might have a good common mix of the tech. But think about like natural disasters. Like, you know, when a hurricane comes through and destroys a bridge, you know, now you don't have to get everything fabricated. You could get a temporary thing put up with with this and to stay in place while you then build regular way the replacement. And so something that would take months and months to complete you know with a 3d printer you could do maybe in days so just, I'm, you know I'm, interesting thought i'm gonna ask you a question we're, we're really traveling far afield here but that's okay it's what we do um i'm <laughs> gonna ask you a question and then i'm gonna read some listener feedback give you a chance to think about that question of all the technologies that you're aware of right now you know impending not that either are on the market in the infancy or 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 forthcoming What's the one that excites you the most? What do you think is going to be the coolest thing uh, in in your lifetime? And like, what your your children or your grandchildren are going to be dealing with when they're adults? So while you're thinking about that, uh, just had a little feedback. This actually came in last week, and I forgot to read it. Uh, if you'll remember, a couple of weeks ago, I gave you the command to go out and tell ten people about Everyday Linux. I I ordered the Element OP Nation. To, to go in and do that. Well, I got a little feedback from our friend Spork Saber. Love that name. Um, and he says, I told 10 people about Everyday Linux. Eight ask, what is a podcast? Two ask, what is a Linux? I'm ready for my next command. <laughs> so thank you, Spork Saber, for being um, faithful. <laughs> I'm sorry it didn't work out to you uh, for you so well. That's pretty cool, though, that he actually went out and did the command. So we could say, go out and take photos of Everyday Linux logos in weird places. We might get some pictures, then, of Everyday Linux logos in weird places. I, I, I wish I had commanded him to send me $100. That might have been more effective. <laughs> more personally beneficial, anyway. Uh, so anyway, um, so now answer answer the uh, the question. Um, we'll start with you, Seth. What is the technology... Uh, that right now is is in its infancy that you think is going to be the cool, not 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 necessarily going to change the world, but just the cool factor. Well, I think that we are um, we are very close to interactive holographic rooms, kind of like you know straight out of Star Trek. So um, you know you might could do that now, but it would be super impractical. But I, I don't see there being much holding you off from that so you talk about you know hey look we're going to study the battle of waterloo it's going to be fought around us 
you know, you're going to, this is what it looked like when the, when they, uh, landed on Normandy, you know, and you're right in the middle and stuff is going off around you. And when you move, it's, there's no buffer while, you know, the computer refreshes to bring this point of view, it's all happening around you. And then even in an interactive type environment, I think that that is the sad part is I think that is possible and it's kind of scary. I'm more, I'm more scared by technology, uh, by the stuff I see that could happen, which is kind of weird from a, a geek, but yeah. So I did see a, a documentary on the Kennedy assassination, and somebody took all the video and all the f- pictures and all the audio that were, were had been taken that day at, in that moment and um, fed them into a computer and using like the based on the position of where this mic was and the echoes it heard and 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 based on this pic they created a 3d model like you, you could actually walk through or fly through and see uh literally every moment of every uh, uh position uh in that you know it took them several months to render it but once they had it there was this thing that you could walk through and and you know they they basically were saying that there's no way Oswald could have gotten those shots off because of the line of sight wasn't there and and that you know maybe even the grassy knoll probably wasn't a, a likely possibility and it, it, you know they were making their assumptions but I just thought the technology was cool that they right. were able to do that and yeah when process this was a few years ago when processors get better and better and you're starting to be able to do that in real time instead of taking months to render super cool oh yeah, yeah. and not, could- you know and not just you have to go to a special place but you could have it in your house you know I mean it's kind of cool. All right, Chris, your uh, your turn to answer. I'm going to say something like what we use right now, this Google Hangout. I think this is just a fledgling technology that is going to eventually take over as the way we communicate. Um, you know, the whole idea of not only hearing someone, but seeing them and interacting with them in a way that, you know, has never technically been done in a global way before. This is, I think, this is the, a cool new tech that is just starting. Um, we, you know, nobody has this in their house right now, unless they're Skype users, really. So, I, I can't wait to see what this turns into in ten years. Yeah, and and mine is like unto it. I think um, the the Google Glass project and and things like it, the the combination of the smartphone. Uh, in your pocket, and I think there there are really two issues right now that are making that t- technology um, inefficient. Processing power isn't it. We, we're pretty well good there. It's the interface. The the you know we have to make the screens bigger to be able to work with our pudgy fingers on a touch screen, um, and to be able to see you know the the retina display actually makes images smaller. So we've got to have a bigger screen or use bigger images. Um, and uh, you know the 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 keyboard interface. When when we figure out the interface issues, and that's you know Google's working on that right right now to be, between a a combination of of uh, you know eye tracking and and voice and gestures, and when we can figure out a way to interact with our devices in a more human way, um, it's really going to be amazing. You know when when we have the you know we already have the Bluetooth, right? When that thing can can squirt an image out. Uh, in front of you that only you can see give you a heads up display um and talk to you and only you but be aware of what's going on around you and be able and hear the conversations you're having and give you context based on it 
you know, somebody makes a, a pop culture reference that you don't get, the machine feeds you the reference, you know, right in front of you. Of course, privacy fanatics will be all nuts about that. It's listening in on our conversations. Ah, Google's going to, you know, but I think once we get past that, um, the, the, the overreaction and get the technology uh, hammered out, that's going to be the coolest thing. This, you know, because the, the, the phones could be a whole lot smaller than they are. They're actually getting bigger uh, because of the interface. Yep. So I think when that when that is uh, when that little Bluetooth thing is the whole device, and you just you know clip it on your ear, uh, or you know in the gla- Google glasses or, or however you you know whatever that interface is, um, I I think that's going to be the next thing. The more you know the cyborging of of the country, that's yeah, what excites me. It's, it's what I think is going to be cool, and I think it'll happen. You know in in my my lifetime. It will be Johnny Mnemonics here soon. <laughs> oh, that was a terrible movie. Jack in and Dude, hack your brain. If, if it's Johnny Mnemonics, I might just kill myself because it was an awful <laughs> movie. That movie, if you haven't seen it, don't. So don't let this conversation drive you out to see it. Don't. But that yes. movie is a prime example of how editing can make or break a movie. Um, I really believe the script and the, the, the talent pool they had was really good, but it was so badly put together in the editing room that it was just a, a total waste. So, anyway. Yeah. Uh, it, well, I, yeah, it was a total waste. I, I'll at least <laughs> agree with that much. <laughs> you know, and Keanu Reeves is such a st- stellar emotional actor. It, it's just amazing that... Uh, no, uh-huh. not so much. Uh, <laughs> okay. The, yes. Moving on to our uh, tech news side of things. Uh, this first one is both an, uh, a bit of a news story and a rant on my part. So let's go ahead and we'll get that out early, and then I, I promise not to rant for at least two minutes after it's over. Uh, really? Should I time you? Yeah. According to Softpedia, uh, Microsoft Security Essentials, the uh, um, antivirus that uh, is free from Microsoft, uh, has failed its test and lost a certification. Ha! Microsoft sucks! They can't even make their own antivirus until you actually go in and read the article. And what it's talking about is uh, the zero-day viruses, the stuff that have never been seen before. The only way to catch a zero-day virus is through heuristic algorithms. And and everybody does that, and and Security Essentials does as well. But there's some things about those. The, The false positive rate is always higher when you're trying to examine what software is doing and try to guess whether it's a virus or not. And it slows the computer down. And Security Essentials, my, my favorite thing about it on a Windows machine is, is you don't know it's there. It's not bogging the system down. So I think that's a trade-off Microsoft made uh, between uh, performance and, and impacting your system. But then it goes on to say that it comes time to uh, things that have been out for a couple of weeks. That uh, it says they had a um, a sixty percent, a sixty nine percent detection rate on, uh, or sixty four. It went down to sixty four percent detection rate on the uh, zero day stuff, and that's what caused it to lose its certification. Certica- certification from AV Test. I've never heard of these people before, but apparently they have a certification of some sort. I've heard mm-hmm. of them. They okay. are they're one of the reputable uh, AV testing groups out okay. there. So, so that's what caused them to lose their certification. But when you get into things that have been out for a couple of months, 
um, they're up to the 90 percentile range. You get out to things that are considered commonly known, they're in the 100 percent, the only one at 100 uh, percent. So it, it all depends on how you choose to look at it. And I think Microsoft is, has said, we're going to update it often, and I have security essentials, and it does update often, even more than daily sometimes. So their idea is not to find zero-day stuff, or not, you know, heuristically, but to just update it so often that it finds the stuff very quickly after they're out. So the the softpedia.com article um, kind of makes it uh, sound, if you don't actually read the article, if you read the first paragraph of it, it sounds like, oh, this is the worst antivirus ever. It's terrible. It never, nobody should use it. Microsoft sucks. But then you actually go on and read the article. It turns out it beat almost everybody in some of the other categories. It was just bad in this one category. So anyway, that's my rant and the news, and I'll let you guys comment on it. <laughs> well, I know personally, uh, for my home business, when a, a client comes to me and look, a home client is looking for an antivirus, and they want to have a, a system that's per, that will protect them but not cost them a buttload of money, Security Essentials is the one I point them to. Um, it's the one that's, from what I've seen and experimented with, it's done the best on the benchmark that I've used. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with Security Essentials. It's kind of weird that they have such a low zero-day collection with all the different data points they would have, but maybe they're... I don't know. Well, so that's the but thing. That- it's, it's only zero-day until somebody finds it. So the, the way I'm reading that is that these people created zero-day hacks because it's not zero-day if anybody knows about it. Right. So So they did something that should have raised the hackles of an antivirus. They wrote something that was very virus-like and fed it to their machines. That's that's the way I'm interpreting that article. So, yeah. you know, because once it's heard of, it's not zero day anymore. Now it's known. Right. So that that's it, it's just interesting though that the, you know, with how many people and companies, you know, the less than 10 machines companies um they have the the thing in the security essentials that sends pieces to Microsoft for collection. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, it, it just surprises me that their zero delay, their zero day would be so low, even if let's say five percent of their collection is the ones that get hit with the zero day. It, it, I don't think it would be such a low number because by the time the rest of their populated install their install base got caught with that. You know, even though it is a zero-day exploit, they would still have something from Microsoft, though. Right. And in case you don't know what zero-day means, I'm I'm the voice of the noob here. I try to be. Uh, you know, day one is the day that a virus is is sprung on the internet. Zero-day is nobody's heard of it yet. It's brand new. It's first release. That's day zero. Uh, so you know, some things like um, the Melissa virus on its zero day spread all over the country. You know, zero day can be a big event. Most of the time it's not, but uh, the real danger is when something has been, uh, we found some quote zero day things that later we found evidence that had been functioning for a year and just nobody had found it yet. So that's the real danger of zero day. Yeah. And zero day, it's not like there's anything out there that blocks a hundred percent of zero day anyway. So I personally, I don't really care for system essentials, but it's more of a personal preference. I think that they are parity with the other free 
offerings that are out there. I just don't like them, so I don't use it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you got some that are better at one particular aspect, but nothing puts them all together because sometimes when you focus on one particular aspect of uh, malware detection, you are by virtue going to be weak. It's like it's like if you are training your body, if you focus on speed, you're not going to be strong. And if you focus on strength, then you're going to lose some speed, you know. But if you try to do cross training, there'll be people who are faster or people who are stronger, but you can do it all. Just not as good as a specialist in their particular field. And it's much the same way in uh, malware detection, blocking, and removal. There's viruses, trojans, spyware, adware, scumware, you know, tons of different terms. And you can pick which one you want to excel at and try to be adequate at the others. All right. That's, uh, that's good commentary. Thank you. We try. We try. <laughs> Got my good in. <laughs> And uh, surprisingly, nobody's surprised by this, there's another version of Ubuntu coming out there. Tell us about the Ubuntu Cinnamon remix. Yeah, I was just um, going to mention it because, I don't know, you know, it seems like every time you turn around, there's a new version of Ubuntu out there. But it is, um, it's called Cinnamon, and of course, you know, it's not official canonical, but it is based on... I, I had it right here on my screen, and then I moved my mouse, and um, <laughs> I think it's based on KDE. I am looking for that uh, desktop, but there's a lot of screenshots here. Let's uh, let's stick the article in the chat room for everybody. But um, it basically it gets rid of Unity, which you know the Unix the Linux community almost to a man seems to hate, and it's the main reason that. Um, <laughs> That Ubuntu is no longer the number one Linux distro. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it's another one. You know, the, it's out there. It's sprung up. Ubuntu has become the godfather of the Linux world, I think. It's making everyone an offer they can't refuse because they'll just take it, strip out Unity, and substitute another desktop for it. But, yes, so there is now a new Ubuntu distro. Cinnamon. Yay! Yeah, Cinnamon hmm. is not... not terribly new i've heard of it before yeah um and magic in the chat room no ubuntu is not ditching unity uh the person who came up with this remix has ditched it um using the cinnamon desktop environment instead of unity but from i don't know chris does this looking at the screenshots would you say it's a kde gnome uh what would you say it looks like i would say it's a baby of gnome um, okay. It looks like they. It looks like they took GNOME two, and kind of slammed all the GNOME three stuff into it, right. and and kind of made a baby out of it because there's some. From what I'm seeing from the screenshots, and this is actually the next desktop I'll be putting myself through for a month. So, um, there you go, guys. You got a free look at the future. One of the future shows, um, because I've I've been curious about Cinnamon. I've never given it its its due you know choice here, so I'm going to give it a shot and see what I think of it. Um, but it, it, that's what it looks like to me. It looks like it's a GNOME two ish thing, but has you know all the GNOME three goodness in it. Cool. All right, and on to other news. A while back, the uh, um, 
Ministry of Education, I forget the exact title, in India, said that they were going to produce a, I believe it was $12 tablet. Well, they're getting close. Uh, we have a hands-on review in PC Magazine of a $20 uh, Android tablet that's being marketed in India right now. And the uh, the upshot, the, the basic thing is, it's not so bad. Yeah, it's a 7-inch tablet. It runs uh, Android 4.04. Um, but, you know, of course, the specs by, you know, if you compare it to, like, the Nexus 7, the hardware specs are mighty paltry. But, you know, um, the, art the person in the article is like, you know, if your choice is no internet or this, this is very usable. Um, you know, think of it as... Um, you know, there are cheap knockoff devices out there that I would equate to trying to access the Internet via dial-up, which is just not good at all. Think of this as like, you know, maybe 256 broadband. You can do stuff. It just takes a while. Um, but it, from what I can see, I'm actually thinking about seeing if I can get one somewhere off the Internet because they don't have plans to market it in America because Americans seem to not have a problem at the $200 price point. But... I think it looks kind of cool. And, you know, for $20, if you get a cardboard box with a piece of plastic in it, you're really, you're not <laughs> out that much. But, uh, you know, it has, a, it has a camera on front. It has a micro SD card, which I find it's labeled TF for TransFlash, which is an old name for micro SD cards. Um, and it, the one thing it does is it has an Ubisoft browser, which kind of, it, it's sort of the way that the Kindle Fire optimizes things to show up on your on your tablet faster. This kind of does the same thing to um, to make web pages load faster on your computer. Um, a one gigahertz processor. Again, it's not great, but it does run stock Android apps from Google Play. It's um, you know it's not great, but it's I mean, for twenty dollars, you're not going to get a lot, but it seems to be pretty cool. Um, I really, I just came across this article today, and I plan to spend this week investing some time to see if I can figure out some way to order me one. I might even pay up to fifty dollars to get it here. Um, well, as the chat room points out, the actual price of it is forty dollars, forty dollars and forty-one cents. Right. Uh, but the Indian government is eating half of that cost, so the cost to end users is $20, uh, which right. is uh, something like 70 billion rupees, I think. Um, and then $2 a month for the data plan. So yeah, the GPRS data plan is uh, not awesome. Uh, it's but, a 2G speed. Right. Uh, is, uh, so, you know, it's like pre-3G. You could do it, but you really wouldn't want to. But Remember your Wi -Fi. old flip phone with the little one and a half inch screen that had a web browser? That's what we're talking about in terms of speed. But uh, they, they make the point that these are for students. Students at universities and high schools are going to have access to Wi-Fi. Right. So it's it's yeah. not it's a non-issue. This is only for when they go home and they're out in the sticks and they just have to have something. Um, I you know I you know, on the American market, no, nobody would ever buy this. But in you know in the developing world, this could be you know huge. It has the and, opportunity you know, to be at least. Well, I think this would be a great thing to give your your kid has their first tablet, so that way they can learn to take care of it. And by the time they have tore it up, 
they've hopefully matured enough where then you could go get them a real tablet. Maybe. Uh, I don't know. But I'm cheap, so don't listen to me. <laughs> well, you know, that $20, let's not forget that for large sections of the Indian population, that $20 is a significant investment. Right. Uh, and, you know, to get them $199 Nexus 7 is is more than a house would cost. Right. You know, so... Uh, let's let's keep things in perspective. This is still this is not a throwaway gadget for them. We rich Americans look at it as a throwaway gadget, but for them, it's a precious commodity. Yeah, and it only gets like two and a half gigs of free internal memory. So you know, again, you're not going to load down your music collection on this. But mm-hmm. I, and they point out that you have to actually press the screen to get the uh, the touch to function. But again. I just thought it was cool that it's, and again, you know, you, you don't go into a Hyundai dealership and be mad because it's not a Rolls Royce, but uh, it seems pretty cool. And like I say, I, I want to try to get one just because it looks, it looks like a cool, cheap gadget. And uh, yeah, I've been uh, looking, I've been in the market for my kids for Christmas. Don't tell anybody kids <laughs> leave the room. Um, uh, for Android tablets, and uh, I've been looking around, and in, in, in the U.S. I, at you know major online retailers, you can get them for as low as sixty bucks. Um, and the ones I ended up settling on were ninety nine dollars, and they're seven inch tablet from uh, HKC, I think it was. Um, and you know when you look at the the price and the 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 features, it, you know a hundred bucks for a seven year old is about right. You know, I'm not going to pay 199 uh when I fully expect it to be damaged within the first 6 months. Uh but the uh you know, being a rich American, the the 50 and 60 dollar ones didn't appeal to me. They they didn't have as much, but uh there there are things out there now. They're on the market, mass market available readily. You don't have to go through any significant effort to get a 7-inch tablet for, you know, sub $100. So the, right. the the mass production of the things like the the iPad Mini uh, and the Google Nexus Seven will make that cheaper for everybody. That seven inch form factor now those seven inch screens with the capacitive touchscreen are being ma- manufactured in the millions where they had been manufactured in the hundreds. Right, uh, and that's going to make everything cheaper. It's it's going to be better all the way around. So um, you know eventually that technology will be disposable you'll pick one up at the checkout stand uh as you're buying your groceries uh but you know we're not there yet but uh just think about the my i bought my kids like a hello kitty digital watch not too long ago for like three bucks something like that think about the first digital watch you ever had it was a hundred dollars probably Somewhere around there and didn't do any more than this $3 one that I bought for my kids. So, it, you know, it takes that long. It's going to be 20 years. But eventually this thing will be marketed at kids in the toy aisle with a Fisher-Price logo on it. So, right. Kind of cool. But, yeah. So, yeah, I thought it was uh, I thought it was pretty pretty neat. So. Um, and uh, I'd follow up on a story that we've been following. Uh, there is kind of maybe sort of provisionally a secure bootloader for Linux that works for UEFI kind of 
Maybe. <laughs> if we're lucky. Yeah, um, the person who did this is a former Red Hat employee, but um, is it anymore? So, again, you know, I, I don't really know what that has to do with anything, but I just thought I would throw it out there. But he gives you, um, it's and he uses it, it's called a shim, and he goes into the technical details. I, uh, I just put the link in the chat room for everybody. But it's a binary that you can do, and it and he tells you where you have to put it in there. And it's a workaround that so apparently he was able to go through and you know we talked about I think it was last week we talked about where the Linux Foundation guy was never able to get the upload to work this guy apparently was um, and then of course I chose this article because there's a lot of a thread in the comments that of course you know some of them are you know tinfoil hat guys and me being a tinfoil advisor guy I can totally understand where they're coming from but uh, there's some actually good conversation where he is active in the thread talking about what it took to do this and um, it's just you know we've been talking about how you know this is Microsoft's plan to lock out Linux from their system but this guy seems to have gone through the process to generate the key and now he's making it available and you know it'll work on pretty much any version of Linux uh, he even makes a point later in the threads that if you run free BSD it will do that as well so anything that's EFI compliant it should work on hmm. so that's there it's the first proof of concept it's working it's there and and people can uh, um can use it it's designed not for individuals but for distributions you know for right. the linux mint guys and the and the cinnamon whatever guys to do it um and they'll but, generate their own keys and and so forth until such time as you know the ufei gods block it mm -hmm. right and of course you know this uh for our, our large contingent of arch listeners who like to roll their own distros you know you can download the binary and compile it yourself here. So I'm sure we have a lot of those. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Ubuntu, excuse me, uh, Linux, <laughs> Dell has been selling uh, machines with Ubuntu Linux on them for a while. They, uh, they really heavily touted it a few years back and then sort of stopped, but you could still, if you talk to the right person, you wouldn't be able to do it online. But if you called up, you could get one with Ubuntu on it. Um, now Dell has, uh, they're, they're redoubling their efforts again. They're, they've got a, a line of XPS laptops, uh, with, uh, Ubuntu Linux on them. And as you would expect, since they're running a free OS, they cost much less than their windows versions. Not so fast, Mark. Uh, for, this is the equivalent of like an ultra book, you know, so you got the good specs, the small form factor, the high battery life, the one, the things that cost money. It actually has of when this article came out, it's $50 more for the Ubuntu Studio uh, Developer Edition than it is for its Windows equivalent. So because you're not getting Windows, you have to pay more money for the licensing fees for Ubuntu. Oh, wait, there's not any licensing fees for Ubuntu. Um, so, yeah, but it does cost $50 more. Uh, and, yeah, that just, that just bugs me when they do stuff like that. The fact that Dell is charging a little bit more for their heart for the same hardware just because there's no Windows on it and they're not getting subsidized from Windows now on this device. It just bugs me a little bit that they're doing that. But I can understand uh, why. It, well, it, you tell me why, because I have my ideas why. So why do you think it is? Well, like I said, I think all of Dell's hardware 
gets a set, you know, when, when they say that we're going to sign this many machines with Windows licenses that Microsoft gives Dell a kickback so that way they don't chart, you know, that way the hardware's cheaper for the, for the customer. So now that Microsoft isn't going to give Dell a kickback for these machines, they got to make up their money by charging the customer more for the same hardware spec. I think that is partially correct. Um, yes, everything you said is true. There is a, a deep discount on uh, by promising to sell a certain number of Windows 7 licenses with your laptops. You get not only a discount uh, on the license itself, uh, but you also get like a bonus. It's like a performance bonus if you meet your metrics. So every one of these they pull out of the line, they're counting against the performance bonus. So yes, I agree with that. But here's what I really think it is. They are guaranteed that everybody who buys one of these machines is going to make at least one call to Dell Tech Support because they're not going to know that they didn't get a Windows device. Oh, And yeah, so I think they're paying in advance for the additional tech support they're going to have to buy uh, to hire to, to cover this. That's my way of looking at it. Isn't that what caught them last it's... time too? Well, no, they never actually said why they stopped selling it, but uh, there were some, some very public um, outcry, but again, it's a very small number of people because most people who bought the Unix machine or Linux machines knew what they were doing, but there were a small uh, percentage of them that didn't. And at that point, the, the, the Ubuntu machines were less expensive. So they were just going on the website, clicking the cheapest button, and when they found out they couldn't load Microsoft Office on it, threw a fit. So they're fixing that by now charging a premium. So now only the people who really want it are going to get it. And that's going to be the geek sector. It's going to be us who know what we're doing. And that extra 50 bucks, which isn't a lot when you're considering a high-end laptop. You're talking about a $1,300 yeah. machine anyway. That $50 premium is enough to scare away the bargain buyer who doesn't know what they're doing. And it'll cover your, uh, your support costs. That's my thinking. I'm sure that's part of it too, Mark. I, I, I think you're right on, at least, I think be, the, between the two of us, we're right. <laughs> Seth, huh. you, you were going to say something? Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I agree with that because it's, you have to go to a different section to get the Ubuntu. You can't just choose. So, but of course, well, I again, know. that's another change from the way it used to be. It right. used to be right there in the lineup. So I think and they're I, going out of their way to distinguish it. And I do see where they now have a hundred dollar instant savings, so it's only fourteen fifty instead of fifteen fifty. So now I guess it is fifty dollars cheaper. Um, but so yay, fifty dollars. But of course, I don't know if the Windows one has the um, instant savings either. But anyway, so yes, I it just seems strange to me that the free OS costs more money. And, you know, I mean, there are some reasons why that, but it also seems to me that, you know, Linux people are fanboys for the most part. And if you want it, you're going to pay extra for it. Um, you know, this way you get the model that, of course, I don't know why you wouldn't just buy the Windows model and then load Ubuntu on it. Um, you know, so that way you have the Windows license if you want it, and then you can load Ubuntu on it and it'll be fine. Which, well, and that's the way I do it. That, that's what works for me is I buy it and I've already, like you said, I've already got the license and I can even burn the recovery disc uh, so that I can restore it later. 
uh, and then I can wipe it out and do whatever I want. But for the Stallmanites out there who will not touch anything that is not open, right. that's not a that's not an option. So now they have the option to get something open if they consider Ubuntu open, and the and the pure Stallmanites don't um, can get something uh, that meets with their p- principles. And like they point out in the chat room, when you get a Windows machine, you get all that crapware on it um, that those companies pay money to the manufacturers to preload their crap. And if you want it without that, you have to pay extra money. So um, I, I, I had not considered that when I was hating on them. But I'm sure, <laughs> you know, all the, the trialware that use this four times and then you have to pay through the nose to use it again. You know, I'm sure they get X amount of money for every yeah. machine that's loaded on. That's yeah. revenue generating. And you know, you know, not only that, but the stickers that they put all over the, the keyboard and the thing, right. they get paid like 25 bucks a sticker. I mean, I made that number up, but I, I, I heard a, um, a manufacturer of, I forget the company, and they, ref, it, uh, they refused to put those stickers on. And they said, you know, we lose, and I'm pretty sure the number was $25 every time we don't put those stickers on. Wow. So, yeah, there's all sorts of, of secondary marketing that goes in there. Because if you've ever, I mean, I know both of you guys know, the three of us here, we've all done it. We've tried to, to make money selling computers. And you right. can't. Because nope. Dell can sell a computer cheaper than you can buy the components to build a computer. Yep. Um, and, th- and that's because they're doing it at near margins. They're making almost no money, maybe even no money, on the hardware itself. They're making the money on the ancillary stuff. Yep. And actually, I think it'll be a good thing for Linux. I think it will. Uh, it has the potential to uh, have you know the Ubuntu machines are the premium machines, right? So they they cost more. They're the extra. They're over on this special side of the website, and I think it has the potential to take some of the stigma away from Ubuntu as being um, the you know the the cheap uh, bargain basement stuff that only the geeks like. I think it hopefully it has the potential to make it. Um, uh, if not parity, maybe maybe people even will even think of it as a premium operating system. And you I know, know I'm like, stretching there, but it's, it's well, no, because you know the Mac people say, "Look at what my fifteen hundred dollar MacBook can do that your three hundred dollars window machine can't do." And we're like, "Duh, it's three hundred dollars, but I could get five of them and do things yours can't." But right. now we, the Ubuntu people, can say, "Look what my fifteen hundred dollar machine can do that your three hundred dollar window machine can't." So, and, uh, and when you also add to that the fact that uh, with Ubuntu you get an entire system, not just an operating system. So you've got graphics programs, you've got uh, office programs, you've got everything. Right. That's you know that's what most Linux distros have tried to be from the beginning. It it really makes sense from a marketing standpoint. To say, look how much more you're getting for only fifty dollars more. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm a Microsoft apologist and a Dell shill. Welcome to everyday <laughs> Linux. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Linux costs more. Now I've never heard of this next company, Ouya O U Y A. I'm guessing that's how they pronounce that. Ouya, Ouya. I don't know. Um, we we've actually talked about them. It has been uh, several months ago. They're the company that has. They're trying to come to market with the $99 Android console, and every game on their console has to be like at least a freemium model. You know where you can have. Part of it is free, but if you want to pay to unlock it, you can. Uh, I, I know we covered this, but it's probably been back in the summer. It's been a while back. Yeah, I don't know that if was that a while ago. For you. But yeah, they are now um, 
you know, everyone who pledged uh, $699 or more in the Kickstarter project, they are sending a developer console to. And because there was a little bit of uh, angst in the community, they did this program where they are keeping 10 of them and they are launching a giveaway program where um, all you have to do is tweet them, you know, so 140 characters tweet them a uh, an idea of what your game will be and uh you know and, and they're not just like not just super serious programmers who've got 20 years in the field or whatever but anyone from a student on up you know can really do it um and you just have to throw the hashtag in there my oya how, how do you say it game um but uh and again i just stuck the link in the chat room so i think it's kind of cool that um whenever they ship when they go retail, the $99 uh, will also be the $99 console will also be a developer console, so you won't have to pay any more money for it. The, the what they're shipping out now, I guess, is just kind of a thank you for. If you look at it, it has a thank you for the Kickstarter people, um, and they expect to ship the 28th, and you should have them by before the end of the year. Um, for everyone who was a part of that level on the Kickstarter project. So they are getting ready to come to market, and they're expecting to ship out in April of next year. Hmm. So I'm a little confused as to why we need an Android-based gaming console. I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. If you're, if you're only going to be, be able to play Android games on it, why not you know, uh, a Raspberry Pi or a cheap phone or anything hooked up to your TV? Am I missing something? Well, it's, you know, think of people, some people out there, you know, why play a game on an Xbox? Because you get a better experience on a computer, is what a lot of people say, but yet consoles are still very popular. So, it's a dedicated gaming device that, and then you're going to develop games for that device so that, like, they're optimized for television and not optimized for a 5-inch screen or 7-inch screen. So, that's... So they're trying to create a, a new class of Android games. Right. They yeah. are launching a... Think of it as another gaming console to compete with uh, Microsoft. The Wii. The Wii and the PlayStation. So they're, they're extending Android's domination of the world from the smartphone and near-tablet market. So. Okay. See, personally, I... I, I, ahead, I was, Okay, I was going to say, I don't think this would be... I, I think it's not fair to compare this up to the Xbox or the PlayStation 3. That I don't think that's where, this, that's where their market is for this. I think what their market is, that this market will be for the as a, a competitor to the Wii or the Wii U or whatever the console is going to be that they're going to call the next one. Um, it, it doesn't seem to be as a high you know, AAA game rate, but it's going to be the little, you know tower defense games and and things that you can put on your phone already and and give you options to other games but i don't think they're going to be able to beat out the triple a developers yet um the, it's still too grassroots it may eventually get there but at this point i don't think it's going to happen well but again but that's that's the market they are launching into so you know you say they're not there yet but Again, I'm going off what I remember from the story, but because I was interested in them before, they uh, they want to compete in the console market, and their draw is going to be, you know, you don't have to spend sixty dollars for each game you get after that. Every game will have a free section on it, so like you can 
there'll be some game, Angry Birds for television or whatever, that then if you like it, then you can go buy the full-blown version of it. So, you know, I, I wouldn't disagree with you that they wouldn't be able to compete with the Xbox and the PlayStation 3 in terms of graphics and, you know, content, but that's their goal. I don't know. I might disagree with you there on that, Chris. If some of the top-end tablets, you know, with the, with the what is it, the... Uh, in NVIDIA, I forget the name of the chipset, but the, the Tegra, Tegra, Tegra yeah. the Tegra chipsets, they have graphics that do rival, you know, the PS3. Uh, Need for Speed, games like that, if you optimize it properly, can can look as good. So I think yeah. it depends on the hardware they stuffed in that box. If it's a Raspberry Pi using the built-in HDMI out, no, not so much. If they're really putting real hardware into it uh, and just happen to be running the Linux, uh, the Android OS on it, I think they could rival them. I, I think they could certainly uh, beat out the Wii, which is, you know, in its by its very design, a very simple uh, rendering engine. Right, mm-hmm. but and you know, I some friends of mine at work they have the uh, Nexus Seven, and uh, the games on it. Again, it's a smaller screen, but I mean, they look. If looking at that screen, it looks the graphics look better than like from a PlayStation Two. Um, or an Xbox, so you know. So I, I I think that they will be able to compete in terms of the gaming experience possible. Now again, whether they get the developers to do that, I I won't say they will or they won't. But I think the hardware and the OS is sufficient to compete. You know, in much the same way that the Xbox, it's graphically it couldn't compete with the PlayStation. Um, you know, the PlayStation could do better, or the PlayStation 2 could do better graphics, but the Xbox was able to beat it in some of the other hardware. So I, I think it'll kind of be the same thing with the, uh, however you say this, console. I'm going with Wii, because the French word Wii is O-U-I. I'm going to say that they're replacing the I with a Y, Wii. Uh, while we're in the name of, of gaming, in the vein of gaming, the humble... Uh, company organization. I'm not even sure what to call it. Um, the uh, the people who make the humble indie bundle are uh, looking at changing the way they do things, or maybe adding to the way they do things. I'm not sure which. Yeah, I, I saw this, and because I'm such a humble fan, and I like to donate to the charity as much as I possibly can, that they those charities and still get something out of it. I purchased this humble bundle that they've sent out um this one is currently the uh humble thq bundle um and these are triple a games that are uh but they're not cross-platform they're they're windows only platform they are bound by steam keys so you have to be a member of steam to get these redeemed um but Steam's free, so that's not really that big of a deal to if if you're not worried about DRM or um, being locked into a computer console. Uh, but it, it, I I don't think they're changing their their model. I think it was just another opportunity for them to get more AAA titles to look at them. Uh, personally, I I like the humble indie bundle or the humble bundle people. They they seem to be really trying to break out of their indie side of the world and try to get some more AAA games. I mean, they, they did get Psychonauts 
and the 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 owner of the Psychonauts, um, they were all over it, and they said yes, we'll be cross-platform. Um, I think it's gonna be harder for say uh, the THQ guys to go cross-platform. Yeah, I, I just don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, but this is a good way to get a foot in the door for the humble by the humble guys to say, look, we sold this many things, this many keys because of our track record. If you open it, we can sell even more. And the Linux guys are selling, are even buying them for a higher, a higher premium. So we'll even be able to do more, you know, break into that, that game or that, that, that operating system for you. So, I mean, I think it's a demographic thing that they're, that they're testing out the waters to see. I may be blowing smoke, but I just I'm hoping for the better. Yeah, the guy in the chat room was uh, it, it was an editorial, you know, lamenting Humble's demise. But I look at it as an opportunity for Humble to it open up another revenue stream because they didn't call this an indie bundle; they called it something else. Um, you know, they're yep. still going to do their indie bundles, but this is a way to make this is a way to get an another stream, uh, another revenue stream. So, you know, I, I look at it as good for humble. They're giving another option to people. You know, there are some benefits and drawbacks when you have DRM, um, you know, and some people would hate it. Some people like it, but you know, there's some people who won't play the open stuff. Um, but here's another way. They have a different bundle type that, um, you know, one thing that is kind of sad is this one isn't uh, cross-platform. It's pretty much only for Windows. But, again, it's not like it's called the latest Humble Bundle. It's uh, There's still the Humble Indie Bundles, and this is the uh, THQ Bundle. So I, I don't look at it as them selling out. I look at it as them branching out. Um, yeah, and that depends. That's your philosophical philosophical viewpoint, right? You could look at it as, hey, they're they're doing good things. They've been doing good things. They say they're going to continue doing good things, but now they maybe maybe be able to make some money doing good things. Right. Or you can look at it as they've sold out. They've compromised their principles. They're no longer uh, true believers in the fact that it's either free or dead, and so now they're dead to me. Right. And you will yeah. hear well, people that's on the both black sides. and white people that say that type of thing. It's the great people that rule the world, and that's where I think the humble is going at. Because I don't think they make a whole lot of money on their bundles, you know, as the humble company. Um, I know they do do uh, when you like for this one when the default split gave the lion's share to THQ. Um, of course, I changed it, and the lion's share went to the charity, but um, it, which is a little different than some of the other ones. So. It's just kind of an interesting thing to how they they preset their sliders. Um, we'll see how it goes in the future. I mean, is this the end of of the humble indie bundle? I don't think so. But is it the end of you know them only going one way? I I believe it's the end of them being all one trick pony. Now they're trying to turn into a a sleigh team or something, which makes them more able to put out more humble bundles later. So it's exactly. a good thing. And the uh, chat room, uh, with the, combined with the power of Wikipedia, has uh, and of course it has to be true if it's on Wikipedia, has told me that the pr- proper pronunciation of the prior game console is Ooyah, as, as in the sound you might make 
when playing a game. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. All right. And now that we've uh, been over an hour, maybe we should talk about the topic that's sort of in the title of the show. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we should just skip that for next time. Uh, there's not a whole lot to this. Honestly, it's it's fairly straightforward. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we've had some good discussions, and I didn't want to cut any of those short. Uh, so we'll just get on to it. This is uh, an article on osnews.com by a, fed by the, a fellow by the name of Howard Fosdick. Um, and he posted this a couple of weeks ago. And it's called, Why I Use Generic Computers and Open Source Software. So uh, I'll just, uh, Seth, you can start us off since you brought the article. Okay, yeah. Um, I actually reached out to Howard and talked to him on uh, via email. I tried to get him on the show, but he says he is interview shy, so we'll respect his privacy. But um, it was it was good to reach out to him and him respond to us. But he wrote an article over at OS News, and while I'm thinking about it, let me throw it in the oh. Mark already did it. Thank you, Mark. Um, he uh, he is like an independent contractor, so he's not necessarily, you know, he's not like who our target audience would be, but he talks about why he uses, he likes to stay away from like locked-in solutions. Um, he's, uh, do you depend on your computer for your living? If so, if so, I'm sure you've thought long and hard about which hardware and software to use. And then he goes on and he makes the cases. There's uh, four points he brings up as to why he uses generic white boxes running open source software. Um, so he wouldn't even buy Dell. He would go to you know, Tiger Direct or New Egg or whatever and buy components and then build his own machine. And one of the reasons he does, uh, I'll just go through and actually list some. One of the reasons is replaceable hardware. If you buy components and that component fails, then you can get another component and stick in. Whereas if you buy a box and that something in that box fails, you then have to bust open the box. And sometimes when you're working with system manufacturers, like not just any RAM will work in their RAM slots. It has to be RAM from specific companies. And actually it's been a while, but there was this one motherboard that not only was it specific companies, but it had to be specific serial numbers or it wouldn't work with that. Whereas, you know, if you just buy components, they're pretty much, you know, they're designed to work with other components and you'll have the odd, uh, incompatibility, but for the most part, replaceable off the shelf hardware, you can buy something and get it there the next day to replace it. And I, I don't see it in the article, but another thing to point out there is you can often, using this approach, purchase three or four computers for the same cost as that high-end computer. The really so you can buy you know workmanlike computers. As I said earlier, you uh, it's hard to beat Dell at the commodity level because right. they're they're selling stuff cheaper than you can get it. But if when you compare your high-end machine to um, say a MacBook Pro or or a, not a MacBook but a, a a Mac Pro. Do they they don't even make those anymore? Do they? They do. No, but, Mac Pro or they they make desktops. But um, what are I think they? they got out of the Pro series entirely. But anyway, yeah. um, when you compare those, uh, you know, when I was working in education as a network admin, that was always my philosophy: is I can I can go to the local guy and contract him to build me machines at literally half the qui- uh, cost. Uh, so you know that's something to consider. You can you can have two and have a spare on hand, right? So yeah, and the next point he makes is you can apply that same philosophy to software. You can find software, and if you're using open standards, then um, you know if there's something 
that if that program ceases to function or if that program doesn't do something you need it to do you can go find another program that will work with it whereas take office for example microsoft office you can do a lot of great things with it but if you're using the office formats other programs might be able to read them but you lose a lot of the functionality and the special sauce built into office when you open them and sometimes you know like with excel or if you do a lot of formatting if you open it up in another program you can destroy that formatting then when you open it back up in office it's different whereas if you started out with open source software and interop interoperability is that you know the one i'm talking about yes. yep yeah interoperability yeah uh so i just tongue-tied and i can't say that word um you know it if if this particular program won't do the function, you save your data source and then open it up in another program that will and probably have a better chance of it looking good. And that ties into the next one of being compatible. If you're dealing with open standards, um, different programs should open up the open standard and do things the same way. So you wouldn't be you wouldn't lose your formatting, for example. And the last thing he talks about is business savings. Um, you know, how much does LibreOffice cost versus how much does Microsoft Office cost? How much does GIMP cost versus how much does Photoshop cost? And before you make the argument, but, oh, I can use Photoshop and blah, blah, blah. If you don't know and you're going to learn, I would suggest it takes the same amount of mental ability to learn either one and whichever one you learn first the other one would be harder. And there's been school districts that have done the study where like they did a year long design class and they divided the groups in two. The first, the first half group A used Photoshop, group B used GIMP. And then the second half of the year they switched them and whichever one they learned first, the other one was harder. That so, was the Ministry of Education in Australia that did yes. that. It was a longitudinal study across uh, on, uh, several dozen, I believe it was high schools and, Across the board, without exception, well, uh, statistically, you can never say without exception, but overwhelmingly, whichever one you started on, you liked, and the other one you hated. Didn't matter which, though. Right. So whenever you're starting out, and if you pick the open source, you save the money, and you're going to have the same hiccups whether you're using LibreOffice or Microsoft Office, whether you're using GIMP or Photoshop, whether you're using Linux uh, or Microsoft, and you could even make the argument that the current version of the open document suites will probably more mirror the office format you're used to the old microsoft format than the new one does so uh, you know there isn't well you know you're switching different you have to learn all new stuff a lot of it transfers over so those are the main points he made and i would suggest reading the article because he writes it really really well um but guys any any comments on that or well, it's definitely a very bootstrap approach. It's not for the average person. Yep. Uh, you know, he he's, he uh, starts off by saying he's a businessman. He's an independent contractor. But let's not forget, he's a geek contractor. Right. That's his job. So if if you want to apply these same principles to your um, printing print shop, and you want to use uh, only generic computers and only open source software to do your printing, you can do it. But a lot of these things that he talks about don't apply to you. You don't have the technical skills to swap out uh, a, a bad RAM chip or even uh, diagnose that the RAM chip is bad in the first place. 
Um, and plus, I think I'm 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 going to call a little bit of uh, of condescension on him here. I think if you buy better stuff, you have fewer failures. You know whether that's you know generic or not. If if, if you're buying, if you're going to, you said you know New Egg or or uh, Tiger Direct, and you're just going sort by price, right? And buying the cheapest stuff, you're more than you're mi- more likely to need multiple components because they're yeah. more likely to fail. But if you're buying high end stuff, if your business depends on it, and and that's that's what he starts out as saying, I have to have. Hundred percent reliability. My business depends on it. Now, I, I was a server admin for fifteen years. That was exactly my mindset. I had to hi- have high end stuff that worked all the time, and the way I did that was not buying cheap stuff. Right, but yeah. but when you built your own, you know, you. I mean, well, the same is true. If you go buy the cheap low end Dells, I work for, and I say Dell because they're the. Uh, thing that I have experience with in districts, and but the same is true of HP. We bought a whole series of Dells. It turns out the power supplies were absolute garbage, and so we're having to replace. And it's to the point now, you know, hey, this is my service. Call up Dell. Can I have your service tag? Yeah, what's the problem? Bad power supply. Okay, we'll get one shipped out to you. They don't even try to argue with you that it's not the power supply. They know, um, right. you know, and this. So if you if you sort by price, and which if you're in business, you would have, you would think you would have the sense not to do that, to consult the reviews and look and see, hey, for the money, I think this is the best. They're more expensive, but this seems to be good quality. And if you're buying middle of the road, I think this holds true. Um, you know, middle of the road components versus middle of the road computers, uh, I, I think it would hold true. So that's kind of like my counterpoint to your wet or your, uh, <laughs> Argument? Yes. I was looking for a clever word, and it eluded me, and so, uh, <laughs> sorry. Chris, did you have any comment on that? Um, I'm kind of in both camps. Um, I know it's it's a lot of people want to have the uh, the best of both worlds on this thought, but you, you can't have both, in my personal opinion. Um, you can either have the cheap stuff that you have to replace a lot, or you have the more expensive stuff that seems to last longer because you're forcing it to last longer because of the price. Um, but as far as the software goes, yeah, that makes total sense because 90% of the people who are coming out of schools now are Microsoft people, so looking at something else is hard for them. So, you know, it, it's the same ideas regardless of what we're talking about, hardware or software. Now, just to be fair, he said generic and I said cheap. I put the word cheap in his mouth. Um, you can buy really high-end generic stuff. Yeah. Right? So that, uh, you know, you can buy that $100 NVIDIA graphics card. That's considered generic because you're not buying it in a machine, but it's still very high-end. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I, I want to to say there that nowhere in this article did he say buy cheap stuff and keep it on hand. I I I did that. I'm the tightwad tech, right? That's what I do. Right. Um, but the you know when you when you look at from the hardware side, I really think that um, when you when you start really comparing apples to apples, and you're you're making a real comparison, I can build this using generic components, or I can buy those exact same same components pre built for me. I don't see a difference there. Because mm-hmm. um, if uh, if you're buying for 
fault tolerance, then you've got to go as, as generic as possible. If you buy for likelihood of fault, you know, you, it doesn't matter. Who cares if the, the, the RAM is proprietary if it's never going to fail, you know, or within a usable lifetime of the machine? So, I mean, if, if he was really wanting 100% uptime, he'd buy rack mount servers to do his daily work on. Right. Because if he, you know, if, if that's really what he was talking about, because that's then you're going to get 100% reliability for seven years. That's what they're designed to do. Right. I mean, yeah, but that's where I think I think that's also where we're going down the road because of tablet the tabletification of things. We can't do the same things now on the tablets that we could do on the desktop. So maybe we are looking at moving back to the whole mainframe client thought again, and that's where everyone will be is buying the seven year servers and then rotating those out instead of rotating your desktops out every three four years but to to bring it back to the open source software side i i cannot find fault with his argument that open source is more flexible that that is true whether it's more reliable or not is debatable but it's definitely more flexible there's a greater degree of your ability to to do things the way you want to do them with open source which is why i like it um and you know so that's that's one of the things he's he talks about there is you can um you can do things you know, however you want to do it with a high level of reliability. Well, and And, and here's kind of his case in point. Here's a real world example. My motherboard died last summer. I removed the boot disk from the dead system and plopped it in another and then booted that Linux instance on the target computer. Problem solved. You know, in Windows, you've got to, you know, hopefully there's a driver for it and then you got to redo the genuine validation. And if that happens more than once or twice, then all of a sudden you're locked out and you have to buy another code. So, um, you know, that is an example where your software is more fault tolerant than, uh, than you know, the open source software is more fault tolerant than the proprietary model. I guess what has me reeling a little bit as I read this article is is the equation he makes between generic and open source. That the generic white box computer um, is synonymous with open source software, and I just don't see it that way. Um, there there are advantages to the open source world, regardless of what software you run it on. Right. And he is he has bound the two together in a way that I think is done too often. So that so again, the, the name of the show is Everyday Linux. I want people to get over the idea that you have to be able to swap out a, a processor to use open source software. And and he's driving right down that lane that so many people do. That yeah. it's the domain of the geeks who do their own stuff. And I would say we need to separate out the two. If you're a hardware geek and you want to build your own stuff, great. You can put Windows on that or so, uh, open source stuff on that. Same runs true if you want to buy off the shelf. You can you can use the Windows that comes with it, or you can put Linux on it. Let's separate those two mindsets. They're not the same thing. Yeah, uh, I I totally <laughs> see what you're saying there, uh, and you know, and he does mention generic hardware and open source software, and you know, I do see where that does create the uh, the marriage in your mind that. If it isn't, it's not really stated in the article, but it is heavily implied. So, and there is, uh, so yes. Okay. 
<laughs> Sorry. I, mean, I get I, half I of a great thought and then it goes. I, I just want to, you know, try to make sure that we're we're not forsaking the you know the bedrock foundation of the show and that is making linux and open source tools us approachable to the everyday people um right and this article does everything but that it it it's it espouses the virtues but only if you're a guy who can compile a kernel you know i, I don't think it goes quite that far but i yeah. understand the direction you're saying it points in so. hyperbole my friend hyperbole <laughs> Well, uh, of course. All right. And, you know, with all due respect, uh, thank you, uh, Howard Fosdick, for letting for, for writing that article and letting us uh, um, ridicule you for it. So we appreciate that. Uh, no, he makes some great points, uh, and hopefully I made some okay points as well. Uh, and I'm going to say that's it. We're going to call Oof. that, uh, draw that to a close, as everyone say, and scene. <laughs> um, and we'll move on to our uh, command line of the week, Mister Command Line Godfather. What do you got for us? Well, thank it's you. not Copy Con again, is it? No, no, it's not. Okay. No, this one actually, um, because I was stumbling for for command lines, I, I got fed a free one uh, this earlier this week from I believe it was Doddle from the chat room, and it's pass. It's PW Gen, and what that does is it generates passwords. And you can make them as secure or as many of them as you want. So if you're not a LastPass user and you're on Linux and you want to generate secure passwords but fail miserably at it or you do the whole hacker leak code thing, this is a better way to do it. You can copy and paste these into any password field that you want or in your giant list of um, or your giant list of passwords. Uh, it's a nice little tool. Um, go ahead and play with it. I played. I think I spent probably almost a good 30 minutes tinkering with all the different switches that it has and generated some really crazy passwords. So uh, have fun with the, the PWGEN. You'll probably have to go out and, down, and install it from your repository manager or your software center or whatever you have. Um, but it's a fun little tool and you can get any password as big and as nasty as you want it to be. And you can also download a Windows version of it as well. Mm -hmm. So if you want to use it on Windows, you can do that. But again, I'm a big fan of LastPass. I think we need to do a LastPass show. We've talked about it often enough. We need to break it down talk about why we use it and uh, what's good about it. So convince yeah. Seth to use LastPass? Is, <laughs> is yeah, that the name of the do. show? Yes, the, the, the zombie version LastPass. <laughs> Mark, do you pay for LastPass? Or are you yes, a free user? You too? No, I, okay. I, it's 12 bucks a year. What? Why would I not? Yeah, that's how I felt too. Anyway. All right, Seth, what is your Seth link of the week? Well, this is a website I came across, and I wanted to share it with people as they gear up their holiday shopping. It is called Retail Me Not. It is RetailMeNot.com, and you go there, and it basically lists uh, coupon codes that are out there. For example, there's currently one for Shutterfly, 50% off photo books, calendars, stationery, and greeting cards. It tells you what the coupon code is. 
for Sears, $35 off, $350 statewide. There's a whole bunch of them in there. And, you know, they, they change and it will tell you the expiration date um, of them. And so anyway, if, if you're looking to go to a specific site, you can go there and check and see if they have it. Uh, you can search for savings from your favorite stores and see if they have them there. Retailmenot.com. So, um, anyway, there you go. Save some money. And, uh, like if you find something for, let me do a quick shirt, search for Amazon and see what they have here. Um, they have some stuff available at Amazon. You can go to elementop.com slash Amazon. And then when you go to check out, you can use some, uh, the coupon codes they provide there and save you some money and get us a little something, uh, in the process. Yeah, and just uh, I was going to do that, Seth. Thank you for that eloquent uh, plug there. I would encourage you, if you're doing your online shopping for Christmas or for Feasel Day or for any other th reason uh, at Amazon, uh, get there by way of our link, uh, elementopi.com slash Amazon. Just make you a bookmark there and use that. And uh, it doesn't cost you anymore. It makes us a couple of bucks here and there. So uh, I would appreciate that. And, you know, if you're going to go buy your your spouse a new Maserati on Amazon, uh, just be sure to do it through us, and that would be great. And if you do buy your spouse a new Maserati through Amazon, we'll give you a free matching Element OP t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, and a hat. <laughs> okay, and a hat. There you go. Whoa, whoa, guys. I don't know. That's a hat and a t-shirt. That's a lot. Come on now. Come on. Oh, by the way, we don't ever talk about this. If you're watching the video, I'm wearing my Element Opie uh, hat. We do have a store. Uh, it's at the bottom of the page on the right side if you go to elementopie.com. Zazzle.com is the store we've got set up there. Everything there is overpriced. I know that. Uh, but it's hard to get on-demand uh, printing and shipping. Uh, so go there, check it out. I don't make any money off of that. I think I, I, think I have the slider set at 1%. Uh, but... I would like to see you people out there walking around wearing my t-shirts and my hats, and that would be awesome. So if you're just in the mood for some geeky gear, uh, maybe uh, Christmas presents as well there. You can get everything. You can even get uh, an Element OP iPad cover if you want. Nice. Uh, because we're so bullish on the iPads around here. <laughs> so uh, uh -huh. just a little plug for that. Again, it's not a, it's not a revenue generator. It's just an opportunity for you to to uh, be our walking billboards. And send us pictures if you have your shirts or t-shirts with them too. I think that would be kind of fun to see you walking around your town or sitting in front of a, a local monument with your Element OP t-shirt on. Maybe we'll flash it up on the, the video screen. Yeah, that would be awesome. I'll definitely put that on the in the show notes if you do that. I'll make you famous among sixes of people worldwide. <laughs> Uh, and I think that's it, guys. Any last comments before we uh, say goodnight? I hope the Cowboys are winning. Don't you tell me the score or anything. I haven't. I don't even have it on, so I don't know. I hope they lose. <laughs> I would expect still... no less from a Canadian. <laughs> oh, oh, hurt me. Hurt me. <laughs> They're still technically in the playoff hunt. If... All the stars align just right. They can squeak in to the wild card. So, you know, we got to keep hope alive. Yes. Well, you know, I, I, yeah. anyway, that's enough football talk. <laughs> yeah, and, and if it happens, they'll prove themselves to be the best of the worst league or, or, or what's uh, fr uh, division in the league. 
So yay, we're the best of the worst in the <laughs> league. Uh, all right, so uh, one uh, one other plug there. Go to elementop.com, click on the feedback button, and feed us your comments and your um, show topics and your witticisms and all other such things as that. If you would like to uh, make a post in the forums, you can click on the forum button there. Go to the EDL forum and make your wishes known in a public way there. Or you can leave us a voicemail by either calling 559-I-AM-OP and leaving us a voicemail there. Or if you're too lazy to even do that, type your phone number into the leave us a voicemail widget at the top of our page at LMOP.com. Google Voice will call you, provided your number is in the continental U.S., and uh, you can leave us a voicemail there. If you live outside the U.S. and don't want to do that, hey, record a, a, a an audio file. Just open up the recording device of your choice on your computer, record something, and email it to me. And that will be just as good. We love to hear from our audience, so we encourage you to do that. And so uh, I'm going to say thank you to Chris Neves and Seth Anderson for being the all-star podcasting co-hosts that they always are. And I'm going to say that ends this episode of Everyday Linux.